Good morning and welcome to the Environmental Echo, PWGC's monthly podcast. I'm Paul Boyce, CEO and President of PW Grocer and your host today. And as always, we're bringing you guys another exciting and interesting topic related to the environmental field, which is what the Environmental Echo is all about. And if you guys, our listeners, need to reach us today, the best way to get a hold of us is www.pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. You guys have questions, comments, uh, concerns or issues or future topics or ideas for guests. If you want to be a guest on the show, certainly reach out to us that way. But uh, diving back into what our topic is on in-situ remediation with Alana Miller from Regenesis. She is a senior Northeast District Technical Manager at the company. Uh, and Regenesis is a global leader in, in research, development, and commercialization of technology-based solutions for the environment. And these guys specialize in scientifically proven products and services uh, or service-based solutions for groundwater and soil remediation at contaminated sites. Well, that's a mouthful. Uh, but their customers generally include uh, folks like us at PW Grocer, environmental consultants and engineers, as well as construction firms worldwide. Uh, Ms. Milner, uh, Miller has had several years of experience in this field already, which uh, you look very young, but <laughs> hopefully the folks tuning in can uh, confirm that with me. Uh, but she's got a Bachelor of Science in Civil Environmental Engineering from Princeton. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> And her experience includes field and laboratory research with the Princeton Environmental Institute. Uh, she's also worked as an environmental consultant on numerous brownfields projects across New York City. Ah, it's, uh, Share a similar background. Right <laughs> up our alley, uh, and uh, hopefully our listeners can all relate to that as well. Uh, her current role at Regenesis, uh, she's working with the environmental consultants and engineers to develop remedial approaches to uh, by, by offering design, application, and performance reviews uh, service and services for the in-situ groundwater and soil remediation uh, so I do want to welcome Alana to the show, and Derek, also welcome. This is his first time on with us. Uh, he's, well, he's not a first time with PW Grocery. He's been here for 15 years, and as, as I mentioned, he's, he's one of the leaders in our environmental division. So guys, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks so for joining. Much. So, uh, you know, just to get started, um, Alana, what can you tell me? What, just to explain to our listeners, what is in-situ remediation? Yeah, absolutely. So... With in-situ remediation, what we're really trying to do is take a polluted aquifer that is, you know, contaminated maybe with things related to petroleum products or <clears throat> or dry cleaning solvents <clears throat> or any uh, other, you know, emerging contaminants that might be out there. And essentially what we're attempting to do is instead of pumping water out from the subsurface and, you know, applying it through filters filters or any other sort of media. Instead, what we're trying to do is take engineered products and inject them directly into the subsurface to help clear up these aquifers. So you guys normally inject below the water table or above it or both? What's what's the process there? Yeah, you know, a little bit of both, depending on exactly what the site dictates. Generally speaking, we're trying to clean up the groundwater. So that means we're applying right into that saturated zone. Uh, but in, in certain situations, we're trying to clean up the soil as well. So we're going to apply above the water table as well. Wow, oh, geez. So how do, how do you guys go about doing that? What's the method to get this stuff? You know, I know we've worked with you guys before on a lot of projects and different sites and different locations, different depths to water. You know, um, how deep do you like to go into the water or how deep can you apply this stuff? How do you get it down there? How how's it, you know, just so people understand Sure. So one of the nice things about this type of approach is just how flexible it can be. So on some sites where 
say your groundwater is super shallow, just a couple feet below the grade, we can certainly do applications pretty easily there. And even sites where, say, your depth of water, we've got some sites out here where depth of water is 50-something feet, even hundreds of feet in some situations. Really, as as long as you can get your uh, drilling equipment down to that depth, we can do the injections. Um, in some cases, we're getting the drilling equipment down to that depth is difficult then, you know, we've got to do other methods of installing sort of permanent wells to actually get the remedial fluids into the subsurface. But like I said, it can be really flexible based on what the site, geology, and other logistics really dictate. And it doesn't always have to be injections. We've had several ones where we've done excavations below the water table and then we're mixing it into the water oh, yes. as we're doing it. Yep, that's right. All fun stuff. Yep. We're making up this lovely cocktail and smearing it and then burying it, huh? Correct. <laughs> All good stuff. So, Alana, you mentioned a couple of the types of contaminants that we typically treat this with. I know it's not made for specifically like metals, say, for instance, but uh, there's VOCs and petroleum products. What are, the, what are the, the, the big ones you guys are going after right now? What are the more common um, contaminants in the environment that this is usually applicable for? Yeah, so... Exactly. Like you said, a lot of things related to VOCs, SVOCs would be sort of the standard contaminants that we're looking to address. Um, so just for some of our listeners, what's a VOC? Yeah, <laughs> a volatile organic compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so with those, you know, there are these organic compounds that can be either broken down biologically or abiotically through potentially chemical means. Or in some cases, we also apply sorbents to the subsurface to kind of remove them from the aqueous phase, meaning that they would no longer be dissolved in the groundwater. Is that, oh, wait a minute, I think I know, is that, that uh, there's a product, and I hope it's you guys, the Plume Stop? Is that's that, right. That's right. I've, I've, we've been looking at that hard, mm-hmm. um, which is carbon, right? Yeah, essentially, it's just really, really finely milled down, activated carbon, the same kind of carbon you would use in, you know, your standard Brita filter or anything like that. And activated carbon, I mean, it's been used for, what, centuries for water treatment, um, certainly for decades in lots of um, pump-and-treat type systems uh, to filter out contaminants from groundwater. But what we've really... Uh, what we've done here, like I said, we mill it down super tiny. It's about the size of a red blood cell, so really small. <laughs> God. <laughs> so, uh, again, back to, so you, you, you show up on site, you have a, I don't know, a tank or a series of drums, and then you want to, we're going to pump this stuff into the ground, right? A typical application, right? How long does it take? How much of the stuff are you putting in the ground? And I, I know it's going to depend on the, the site and what's contaminating, say, the aquifer or the soil, but, um, you know, how long does it take? Uh, how fast can I get this stuff into the ground? How much of it do I have to put? You know, all that fun stuff. What, what, what's going on? Well, I can take a little bit of that. We just finished an application. Um, it was a relatively small area, probably like 100 feet by 30. Uh, we injected every six feet. Um, how deep? So basically water tables at like five, so we would inject from nine to four. Okay. So you typically start at the bottom and then you pull up when you're injecting. Um, a lot of trying to think of what the volume was, but it was probably like hundred thousand gallons over that area, yeah. and it took about a month. Holy cow, a hundred thousand gallons, huh? Mm-hmm. And which product were you putting in, Derek? So this one was 
uh, a combination. Um, we were treating two different things. One where there was a lot of source remaining, so we mm-hmm. used the persulfox in that area. Uh, this was a gasoline spill. Okay. And then above that, uh, where it was more dissolved phase, we used a product called Regenox Part A and Part B. And Alana could probably tell the difference between those two. Yeah, they're they're both chemical oxidants, so essentially directly breaking down these compounds and essentially mineralizing them, right? Um, so that's a pretty well understood technology. And, you know, these two different versions of these chemical oxidants sort of have their sweet spots. Um, we find that some of them are a little easier to mix and inject than others, but ultimately they, like I said, they just really directly attack these contaminants and turn them into things that are no longer toxic. So is this just strictly chemical or is there a biological process to any of this stuff as well? Yeah, so it's primarily chemical, but one of the nice sort of perks of this type of application is some of the residuals do kind of help continue biodegradation for any, you know, little residual that might be left. You just led to my next question that I want to know about, you know, so once we put this stuff in the ground and it breaks down everything, what are we left with? What happens? Is it harmful? Where's it going? People want to know. Yeah, I mean, by and large, the what's left after this type of application is carbon dioxide and water. We're really just directly breaking down all these chemical bonds and turning these things into other substances that are no longer toxic. Um, <clears throat> from the, you know, persulfox, for example, um, like the name sort of suggests, it's made of um, persulfate is sort of the active ingredient there. Is that color purple? No, that that's, that's a, a that's, that's another potassium, one. <laughs> that's a potassium-based product, I think. Yeah, that's the uh, permanganate. Yeah, and that's similar type of approach there. That's another chemical oxidant okay. that could be applied to the subsurface. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's it it really all these products they they work really well to just sort of directly target these contaminants. So so it breaks down the contaminant into like benign components, like you said. Water, CO2, you know, what ha- does it do anything? What's left in the water? Is it, you said CO2, does that change the pH or anything? I mean, what happens? Yeah, we expect in the short term there might be some of those kind of geochemical changes. Um, certainly for people who are familiar with this sort of terminology, we're creating a pretty oxidative environment. So your ORP is going to certainly really dramatically change. But Really, the, the lifespan of these oxidant products is usually on the scale of a few weeks, maybe a couple months. So after a relatively short period of time, everything kind of levels back to pretty close to what would naturally just be present in that, in that aquifer. Wow, that's quick. It's quick. Just, it's like your site where you said you dumped in 100,000 gallons. Yep. So we're expecting after a month or two, there's nothing left? Or what do we got? Well... In our case, we actually did the injection, and then two weeks later, we followed up with a second round of the application okay. just because we had such high concentration. So the hope is when we go back to do our groundwater sampling, our concentrations are significantly decreased. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so w- what are the pros and cons of this in-situ remediation? You know, Why is it better than, say, like a pump and treat or you know any other, like a, maybe an air sparge or soil vapor extraction? What, what are my benefits yeah, so, you know, all these different approaches certainly have their place where they kind of best fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, when comparing to, like, a pump-and-treat type system, the, the main advantage to an in-situ-based approach, one is that you can be 
in and out relatively quickly, right? You know, sure, you're out there for a month doing injections, but say you were planning to install and run a pump and treat system. I mean, these systems run for decades, decades, yep. yeah, right? They do, they do. Um, and, you know, they, they are certainly going to be effective at reducing contaminant mass, but sometimes when you're running a mechanical system that requires electricity to operate for decades at a time, that has a huge impact on, you know, just if you're thinking about this from a, a sustainability perspective, you know, it's a hefty electric bill associated with running a mechanical system like that for decades on. <laughs> what, I, what I also like is, you know, with pump and treat, I, I pump the water out. I got to put it back someplace. Here, I'm, I'm not moving any groundwater around. I, I don't have those issues or those risks or liabilities associated either, correct? That's right. You're not going to have to deal with getting discharge permitting that, yep. you know, you've got to deal with that entire time that that system's running. Um, certainly you have to get permission from whatever regulatory body to do the injections themselves. But, you know, we've been doing these things for for a while now and it's pretty well understood and the regulatory community is usually very receptive to it. When do you see like a, a chemical injection project not being the real way to go? What, 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 what do you guys, you know, what are the obstacles or roadblocks would say, hey, wait, no, there's, there's a better way to do this? I think a lot of it has to do with what does your subsurface look like? You know, obviously you're injecting, so you need to have, you know, sands or other things that it'll actually disperse. If you have a lot of clay, it's going to not be able to, you know, uh, get your radius of influence and it's going to be difficult to get all your chemical to attack all of your contaminants. And also I'd assume it's the contaminant itself, right? Correct. This technology, as I, as I mentioned, I thought like metals, you know, if I had like a cadmium or a chromium problem, it may not be suitable or... For, yeah, I mean, certainly there's, you know, certain classes of contaminants it's not going to be super well equipped for. For certain metals, it can work. Uh, chromium specifically, we can do things to sort of um, help immobilize it. But others, yeah, it can be very challenging to utilize in situ methods for, for many other metals. But the other thing really, though, is just the amount of contamination that might be present. Um, sometimes you're dealing with uh, you know, non-aqueous phase liquid levels. Oh, yeah. Right. If you've got still pretty measurable amounts of that contaminant that's, there's so much of it that it's past the solubility limit, right? It There's too much of it to even be dissolved in the water. Um, that's where these technologies are not as well equipped. That that helps. And that makes sense. So if I've got like a big glob of pure product, uh, there's some other ways to get that out of the ground a little bit quicker than using um, chemical oxidation or, or biological means, correct? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we definitely, in those sort of scenarios, recommend doing some sort of physical removal. Often that's just, you know, a targeted excavation or something to really hit it pretty hard. Now, what about from a regulatory standpoint? You know, uh, what's involved with getting these, you know, if we come up with the idea to, to, to clean up a site using this, what, what's involved, entailed, who's overseeing this, who's going to approve or deny us, you know, what goes on with that? Technically, we include these in our work plans, our remedial plans to the state, and they'll sign off on those work plans. As far as permitting or anything like that, I have not been aware of any permits that have been required by the, the state or the federal government for it. You may have some local or um, local municipalities that may have some perm permits required for you know injecting it, um, DLB permits or something like that. But for the most part, um, once it's in a work plan, the state will sign off on it or the federal government will sign off on it. Yeah, and that's generally how it works in most states, at least. Everything's a little different once you go 
across to other different states or, you know, if you're in the, um, if it's a super fun site and you have to get EPA involved in all of that. But, you know, generally speaking, yeah, you write it into your work plan and so, so this is a generally accepted technology by most like state agencies and, and the federal government. And so we, we, there's no problems with like local health departments not being familiar with it or something. And, and or there's no areas of the country where this is prohibited. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly, you know, in New York and in and around New York City, this has been used extremely extensively. Oh, we know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Certainly in other places, maybe a little bit less so, but by and large, it's very widely accepted. So what about like in cases, you know, Derek mentioned sand, gravel, silt, clay. What about like rock, like fractured bedrock? Have you guys had applications where you're able to successfully use this in in a rock type of environment? In like areas of the Bronx and other places, we've got pretty shallow bedrock that might be contaminated. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've done applications to fractured bedrock on, you know, I don't know how many, but many different sites. Um, what we find with that, um, as long as the bedrock fractures themselves are well understood and well characterized, we can be extremely successful. Now that, that in and of itself is no easy task, getting a good understanding of the ge- geology and hydrology associated with with bedrock is uh, I, I could make harder. that entirely <laughs> no, a whole nother podcast yeah. the experience we've had with bedrock and maybe we should someday but yeah. um, so w- guys like Derek the environmental guy me the engineer when we take on these projects you know it, with your experience what are the things we often overlook or we, we forget to consider you know when we're trying to apply this and, and you may end up being an obstacle or, or, or more difficult challenge like you know typically w- what are we not doing like uh, with our due diligence or with our thought processes or process or consideration for this type of technology sure so to give credit where it's due you know you guys always do a really great job of sort of identifying where the contamination is present right if you're looking at aerially over a property I'd say you guys and consultants in general are doing a really good job of sort of pinpointing, here's where the plume more or less lies. What we find sometimes are the data gaps would be exactly what Derek was talking about with, you know, different geological units. So you might, in your remedial investigation, take some soil borings and have a general sense of what kind of lithology you're dealing with. But sometimes there's a you know, tiny little stringer, some seam of sand or silt that is potentially serving as a, essentially a preferential pathway for contamination to migrate through that might get missed uh, along the way because visually looking at a soil core might only be like a couple inches or something. If you're characterizing the soil and you say, okay, this is a, a silty clay, that's 99% true, but there might be one little lens of something where contamination might be migrating through. What about like, uh, you know, this is something that's near and dear to me. I do a lot with it. It's water quality and geochemistry. Are there anything, any parameters that um, might make this technology difficult? Like we mentioned pH and uh, oxidation, ORP. What about like salinity, hardness, temperature? Are there ideal ranges for this? And, you know, places like I say salinity, if we're down by the coast or in a brackish condition, might it not work? I mean, what do you guys, what do we need to be more aware of for you guys? Yeah, um, you know, we are all scientists and engineers here. The more data, the better. We're always happy with having more information to be able to put into our models and understand the site better. With that said, there's a few things that are always going to be critical. And 
at the end of the day, it's just having a really good sense of what your actual conceptual site model is, right? If you have a good sense of, um, you know, where contamination lies and how it's moving, that's always going to be the most critical aspect to getting our heads around this sort of thing. But yeah, the geochemistry too can certainly have an impact, particularly um, if an aquifer is overly acidic, that can have some impacts on the efficacy of some of these processes, um, especially if we're talking about biological degradation mechanisms. When you say overly acidic, five, four, yeah, six, any- <laughs> what, what kind of pH? Yeah. Um, honestly, anything less than that, five or so, can be challenging for, you know, and it'll all depend on the site and what we're trying to achieve out there. But a lot of, um, a lot of the microbial community that we might rely on for, you know, essentially degrading these compounds, they're, they're not as happy in the, some of those acidic conditions. What about aerobic or anaerobic? Do you guys ever have to, you know, boost the oxygen levels to get these little guys, uh, you know, get the metabolism heated up and get going? What do we do about that? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's exactly what we're applying is intending to do. So, you know, Regenesis as a company for almost 30 years now kind of got started with our oxygen releasing compounds, which you know have been used so widely now across the whole country, across the world. And the idea there was that these groundwater plumes that are contaminated with primarily petroleum hydrocarbons are weak in the amount of oxygen they have. And that is, um, if we're talking about natural degradation processes, that's the sort of most efficient way for these contaminants to get biodegradated is in these aerobic environments. So what that product does is essentially feed more oxygen into the system so that that natural process can continue on really efficiently. Like I said, we get those guys, get the metabolisms going, the co-metabolism, you know, all that fun stuff. Do you add enzymes too? You know, occasionally we'll we'll add things like that. Um, and in some situations too, primarily when dealing with, um, you know, the, the chlorinated solvent type sites where, you know, either dry cleaning or other uh, industrial solvents were used, sometimes those microbial communities are not present naturally at the levels we would need to really see that degradation happen in an efficient way. So we will sometimes even actually inoculate the subsurface with uh, a pretty healthy community of the needed microbes for that to happen. Wow. So scale-wise, right, what's like the largest plume or largest site you guys could use this technology to treat? Is it, is it unlimited? I mean, again, assuming everyone has the, the, the means and the resources to do it, or is it just you reach a point where it's just too big for us? I mean, if, uh, if your purse is big enough, there, there's no real limit here. <laughs> but of course, the, the constraints of the real world, there's always a, a limit on things like well, that. But can you give me, for instance, what's like the largest scale project you're familiar with that uh, Regenesis has worked on? I mean, we've dealt with plumes that are acres long, um, or acres in, in size. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and we, we try to be as efficient at tackling them as possible. So we sometimes, say you've got a, a groundwater plume that has gotten really huge, right? Oh, we do. Yeah, it, happen, it happens <laughs> pretty often. they all over often. the place, yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes instead of, say, targeting every square inch of that plume, We'll try to be efficient and say, you know what, let's target sort of the, the tail end of this plume and try to prevent it from continuing to migrate on. And that can be a really efficient from a time and cost perspective way to 
really help clean these these sites up. In these situations, you're probably doing a combo of different types of remediations. You have oh, yeah. you know, maybe have your your plume stop at the edge, maybe pump and treat further up in the middle of it, some soil excavation or source material. So it's a combination of probably everything. Yeah, we definitely are big proponents of sort of multiple treatment trains, right? If we want to maintain a high level of efficiency as much as possible. So for our listeners and maybe for myself, you know, what's, how do we monitor these, the, the, the efficiency or the effectiveness? How do we know this stuff's working? What are we doing to, to, to check on it um, and, and to know when we're done? Did so, it work? So I can take this. Typically after you inject the, chem- the chemicals, you don't want to take your samples for a little bit of time because you want them to work. You don't want to be pumping them out. Um, but then after that, you're typically, you're going to want to take samples you know, as often as possible to see your trends. Uh, typically, it's quarterly on state sites and federal sites. So, so we're sampling monitoring wells that are... Monitoring wells that are in the plume, downgrading the plume. Okay. Um, so you have a baseline prior to your injections, and then you want to see uh, those concentrations going down, showing that the chemicals are actually working. Do we want to monitor, like, breakdown products as well? We do. So in certain situations where you have the chlorinated solvents, yep. obviously PZE is the main component of that. Yeah. You want to see the breakdown products, DCE, TCE, vinyl chloride. Yeah. And when you can see that you know your PCE concentrations are going down, you may get a spike in those breakdown compounds, but that's what's supposed to happen. Yep, it's all part of the process. So people shouldn't panic you if shouldn't they, panic. They, they see my, my main, my parent compound is decreasing with time, but some of its daughter products or breakdowns Correct. are increasing and, and and eventually over time they'll start to, to dissipate as well as as the as the main one is being consumed so with these chlorinated solvents sometimes you have your first application to break down the pce and then once the pce starts to get to levels that are close to your water standards now you got to go back in with a second injection to break down the, the daughter compounds <laughs> <laughs> so but the, your, your end result is a lot quicker than what would happen if it was naturally oh man oh, and, yeah. and are there anything besides the the contaminants we want to monitor like i said like dissolved oxygen levels or conductivity or what else would you guys be checking on to make sure that this is working and, and we're driving this in the, in the right direction. So I guess it depends on what you're injecting, but I know obviously with the, the you want to look at ORP with your oxygen comp- compounds, uh, dissolved oxygen, conductivity. Uh, those are the, probably the three big ones. Yeah, and then, you know, for some of these two, particularly when we're talking about like the, the chlorinated solvent plumes, there's even sort of a past your daughter products. You can look for like the ultimate end products too, which mm-hmm. would be sort of, and these are not hazardous or anything. These are the non-toxic end products would be things like ethene and ethane. You know, once we've completely removed all of the chlorines from those atoms. What about like unintended consequences, right? Uh, let's just say uh, Mr. Consultant here and Mr. Engineer, we didn't do our due diligence. And let's say there's like a lot of iron in the ground. Could that have a substantial effect on, on how, how this treatment system or this treatment would work or would we liberate iron and cause more problems than we <laughs> started with or anything like that happen a lot potentially yeah <laughs> particularly if we're talking about um you know when we're applying chemical oxidants there's a lot of metals that might be present that mm-hmm. you could potentially you know turn them into their oxidized state you know we're trying to oxidize the actual contaminants of concern at the site but other things are going to be oxidized as well whatever is sort of present there to begin with. Um, usually it's a surmountable challenge. And like I said, those those conditions, when we're talking about chemical oxidants, really don't last too long. 
So we can usually overcome all of that, but it is certainly, there are lots of things to, to take into account before, you know, injecting anything into the subsurface. Well, have you guys ever experienced the site where, you know, the geology and the contaminants, everything, the stars are aligned, and then we get a little bit into, like I said, the geochemistry, and we find something like maybe the iron we're worried about, and you said, whoa, 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 what's, this isn't right. Have you, have you ever encountered that? You know, certainly we, we, we definitely have, and uh, especially, um, you know, I was talking about how important having the right pH conditions can be. And, again, it, it's something that can be overcome. You know, we can... With, a, with enough effort, you can apply buffers to sort of alter the, the groundwater pH and other mm-hmm. geochemical elements. But it, it certainly is a challenge, and it's something to, to really be thinking about before proceeding with any of these types of applications. I will keep that in mind going forward because it's, it tends to be something we overlook. Like I said, all of a sudden, we've got this perfect straight road ahead of us and uh, we hit a roadblock, you know, so we got to be looking for these things. Um, Emerging contaminants, you know, what is Regenesis doing to look at stuff like the PFAS, the 1,4-dioxanes, all these lovely compounds or contaminants that we're starting to turn up in a lot of different places and it's, they've got some serious impacts. Is is that on your radar? Are you guys already dealing with that? Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, we've, Successfully implemented treatments for, for both PFAS and 1,4-dioxane. Um, with 1,4-dioxane, it's a, it's a challenging contaminant to deal with, but unlike PFAS, it can be broken down. There are mechanisms that are understood to break down 1,4-dioxane. The challenge there really is just that the standards that are being thrown around are extremely low. Really low, yeah. Um, and getting anything down to really low standards can be, you know, it, it has its challenges. Uh, but there are uh, mechanisms that are well understood for degrading 1,4-dioxane. We've had some success with uh, the persulfox product that mm-hmm. you're talking about, that other site that was applied there. Um, with PFAS, though, I mean, it's coming up everywhere, right? Yeah, t- <laughs> it is. It's so ubiquitous. And, again, the the remedial standards are even lower, right? For most contaminants that we're dealing with in groundwater, we're usually trying to get everything down to the part per billion level. With PFAS, though, we're trying to get things down to the part per trillion level. And I know in some places they're even tossing around standards at the part per quadrillion level. Just makes I have not heard that yet, and that's pretty <laughs> scary. Don't tell the water authority. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oof. That's going to be tough to achieve. It, it makes your head t- start to yeah. spin a little bit. But, um, no, we, we have been really successful. Uh, the Plume Stop product that, that we up. were talking about, um, you know, it's activated carbon that we can directly inject into the subsurface. And the nice thing about these PFAS compounds, if there's a nice thing, is that they – really do sorb very well to activated carbon. So that what I mean by that is they will adhere to the surface of the activated carbon after we've put it into the ground. So we can essentially, you know, these plumes get really big and they affect a lot of people. We can sort of stop it in its tracks and make sure it doesn't continue so on any further. Once you put the plume stop in, right, it's not really mobile. It, what is it? It sticks to the soil and it, and it sort of coats the soil That's particles right. and then... So how long does that last? Do you have to redo it after a certain time? I mean, like, so when we treat water in a water treatment plant, uh, the carbon gets depleted. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, all the adsorption sites are occupied and stuff starts coming out eventually. So we, we've got to regenerate or replace it. What happens with the plume stop? Yeah, no, good question. And 
ultimately, you know, activated carbon, the same general logic applies, right? Eventually those sorption sites will get filled up. But when we, if you think about the surface area of a particle, the larger the particle is, proportionally the smaller the surface area is. So when we have a particle that we've gotten really, really teeny tiny, we have a proportionally huge surface area. So that means there's a lot of these Mm -hmm. sites available for these contaminants to stick to. So we, of course, are concerned with this as well, and we employ modeling to sort of determine how long would this treatment actually last to help contain these PFAS contaminants. And we find, you know, our modeling and some third-party modeling that has been done it's looking like it'll work for decades and decades to come. Oh, wow. So you guys haven't had the experience yet of, you know, all right, I've, I've put this plume stop in. I don't have to, you haven't come in back in to redo it or do it further downgrading or further upgrading or whatever. Right. And, you know, that it, exactly. We, we um, you know, we're essentially after we do the application, we go through, if you think about other systems that might get installed, a commissioning phase where we want to make sure you know, what we applied, it's working. And then, yeah, we expect once we have it sort of up and running that it'll last for decades to come. Potentially down the line, you could always go and do another treatment line to sort of extend that even further. Um, so and certainly you, a long-term treatment Have you guys approach. seen any issues with it? Like just literally you put the stuff out there and it just plugs up the aquifer? Or, or is it just, I mean, obviously it's got to go in a fairly course formation i wouldn't think like silts and clays would be appropriate for this or is it so yeah the you know if we think about the the diameter of the pore through it's kind of between any individual soil particle um for sandier soils that'll be fairly wide distance between them so coatings each particle with one micron it's not really doing anything to change it at all um, so we don't see any of those changes in, you know, how groundwater can move through it. It really is staying permeable. Um, when we're talking about finer grain material, certainly the, the space between each individual particle gets even smaller. You know, it might be a few microns in size between some silt and clay particles. But since we've milled it down to about a micron in size, it's still smaller than that, and we don't really see any issues of um, permeability being changed. Certainly it has the application challenge of trying to inject anything into a, a dense clay has its challenges, but... Your spacing will probably be closer in clay than it would be in, in sand. Exactly. So it sounds like this is pretty effective over a wide permeability and porosity range. Yeah, absolutely. We've, I, I'd say we've applied it over most different lithologies with, with real success and you know, every site's going to be a little different, and we pride ourselves on our ability to sort of make changes on the fly. You know, our team that's doing the applications themselves is all highly trained, and they understand what they should be looking for in the subsurface so that they can, you know, make sure the application itself actually goes well. Wow. Derek, uh, I mean, from our office, right, I'm not familiar. I know we've looked at this. We've considered it. We've talked to clients about it. We've gone back and forth. Have we ever used Plume Stop on any sites uh, that we've been involved with? We've, I think it's, is it the Petrofix that has the activated carbon as well? Yep. So we've used the Petrofix, products. which is the sister product, uh, geared more towards uh, you're, you're binding your contaminant in the carbon and then actually having another uh, chemical be able to break down it while it's on the carbon. So it's like a dual phase. You're stopping it and treating it. Where do you guys come up with these ideas? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. 
We've got a really great R&D department to have some people who are extremely intelligent and focusing all their time on effort. Sounds and like you got a room full of mad scientists. <laughs> yeah, I love pretty it. Pretty much. I love it. Well, <laughs> along those lines, you know, what can you tell us? What are you guys, what's up and coming? What are you guys looking at? What kind of, you know, next compound or technology? What's on the horizon for you guys? Yeah, so certainly continuing on with these emerging contaminants, we're, we're looking to get more sites under our belt to, to keep um, working on PFAS for sure. Uh, we're looking potentially at other ways to help address these these PFAS plumes. Uh, more to come on that soon. So what's got your attention at the moment? Yeah, I mean, certainly everything related to these emerging PFAS contaminants. I'd say, you know, uh, you know, I started with Regenesis about four years ago now, and PFAS was sort of just starting to be on everybody's horizon, right? We had, when I first started, done a couple of applications for PFAS. We've now done a couple dozen different applications. Okay. Um, and, and really, I think it's just going to, as a scientific community, we have so much more to learn, so much more to see, and it's just a, it's an exciting time to be in this field, uh, that's for sure. I've got one that might be out of your, you know, box right now, but nitrogen. Have you guys ever, because like here in Long Island, you know, oh, a lot sure. of Suffolk County is unsewered. We've got nitrate, ni- uh, nitrite, nitrate, nitrate. Uh, Ammonia, you know, all these nitrogen compounds out there and our total nitrogen, it's, you know, stuff flows to the bays, it flows through surface waters, it gets into our drinking water. Um, have you guys ever considered going after something that would, you know, reduce the nitrogen in the groundwater? Sure. Um, you know, not specifically. Um, you know, we, we toss around a lot of different ideas and we want to make sure that what we're doing sort of uh, caters to our area of expertise, yeah. which really are these... Um, organic contaminants are sort of our, you know, primary focus to, to make sure these things that are extremely toxic, that we come up with solutions to really help address them. Got it. What'd you think of that, Derek? Well, you know, I think it's definitely something we need to look in for the nitrogen, but, you know, hopefully. If, if you guys can come <laughs> up with a silver, silver bullet for that, uh, I, we would be eternally grateful. I'll you take know? a note yeah. to our R&D you know, team. That's something you guys come up with. We could just put it, flush it down the toilet. It goes out to the septic tank and bam, takes care of all the nitrogen. That would be amazing. I all think right. what would be the technology in the future we'd like to see is we were able to bind these PFOS compounds, but can we actually ever break them down? That would yeah, be exactly. the, the technology and the science I'd like to see. Yeah, and there's definitely tons of folks working on that in, you know, both the commercial and academic spheres really working hard on that. I mean, I'm hopeful that we'll get there pretty soon, right? I mean, there are lots of other contaminants that we weren't sure exactly how to treat not too long ago. And now, like chlorinated solvents, for example, we've come such a long way in understanding how to degrade them and we can be really successful. And I think it's just a matter of time. You look at the the timeline when I first started, ORC was your only option. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and and now we have probably 10 15 different options say at least for, a dozen yeah know, each each different type of thing so the, the, obviously the technology in 15 years has you know gone so far yeah so you know trying to get to the end of this but um going back to the pfos and the plume stop right so i've bound this stuff up in the, in the carbon on the soil and now i've got a brown fields right i want to go in and i dig that soil up mm. 
does it have to get disposed of as hazardous or non-haz? What, what do we, how do I handle it once I've got that stuff bound up in the soil? I'm assuming you're still going to have to characterize it, and your characterization will really depend on, it will tell you whether it's at a hazardous level or a non-hazardous Concentrations, level. Concentrations, huh? And then you'll probably, if it's non-haz, you may still need to get like a contained-in determination from the state to dispose of it as non-haz. I, I don't see that getting reused anyplace. Yeah, <laughs> Typically not. I, probably not, but uh, yeah, it's, all the, the regulations on this are still sort of up in the air. I know EPA has laid out their roadmap of what the future of regulating PFAS compounds is going to look like. But and, and I don't think it's listed as a hazardous compound yet. Not so yet. technically... I, again, you know, I'm just it's, that's cut, that's spitballing here, you <laughs> yeah. know, because if we start digging yeah. this stuff up yeah. that we put in there, and maybe, even, you know, with the plume stop with VOCs, you know, not, not even just the, the PFAS, but, you know, VOCs could certainly be ha- hazardous, mm-hmm. right? So if I came back, you know, 10 years later, I'm like, okay, stuff's remediated, but it's, it's still on the ground. It's not going anywhere. But now I want to put a building there or an underground garage or something. I'm going to dig that out. And I've got these contaminants that I assume they're still, they're bound to the soil. Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't degraded a lot. Maybe they have, but something to think about. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, with, um, with contaminants where we understand how they would degrade, probably a little less of a concern, but certainly with PFAS where they're, they're not naturally degrading, nope. that's for sure. Um, the, the one sort of advantage we'd have there is most of the time when we're talking about things being characterized as hazardous waste, it has to do with how, um, how contaminants might leach off of it. How toxic. Right. So once you've kind of bound it up on the carbon, you would have much lower potential for those contaminants to actually leach off, even if they are present there at measurable levels. Really cool. Guys, have anything you want to add before we wrap up today? Alana, anything we didn't cover that you, you feel is important to get the word out on? No, I mean, uh, this was really great. And definitely if you've got any, if anyone listening has any questions on really any of the technologies that you've been talking about here, feel free to um, hit me up or go to the Regenesis website regenesis.com. We've got lots of great information and resources. Oh, on. you guys do. You <laughs> don't, you really do. Like even like the, the papers and stuff. Yeah, the, case studies. The, on case there studies. Yeah. It's, it's really helpful. Yeah, no, we appreciate that. I'm glad you find it helpful. And there's a lot of good stuff on there. So definitely if you're curious about PFAS or really a whole slew of other contaminants that, that might be of concern, there's lots of great information on our website. Awesome. Derek, anything you want to add before we uh, wrap up? No, I think we touched on the main topics. You know, I think emerging contaminants is the future that we need to look into. Oh, boy. Is it ever. Well, I, I do want to thank the both of you, Derek Erzbach, Vice President with PW Grocer and our environmental unit, and Alana Miller from Regenesis, who is their Senior Northeast Technical Manager. Correct? Yep. Thanks and so much. Uh, listeners and folks who joined us today, do, I want to thank you for your time, t- taking your time to, 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 to join us and listen. Uh, I am Paul Boyce, the CEO and president of PW Grocer, and this is the Environmental Echo. And again, if you guys need to reach us or contact us for any reason, the best way to get a hold of us is www.pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. And again, thank you for joining us today. This is the Environmental Echo.